Welcome back to another episode of the IFF Podcast. I'm your host, Doug Stern. With me, as always, is our other host, Mark Triglio. How are you doing today, Mark? I'm doing well, Doug. How are you today? Doing good. Today, we're going to talk about, I think, one of the issues that we've talked about the most on this podcast, and that's the COVID-19 pandemic. But we're going to approach this one from a little bit different perspective. Uh, Larry Laughlin is one of our members at Local 1664 Montgomery County, Maryland. He was exposed to COVID on the job. He had COVID, had a pretty bad case of it, and is now back to work. But I think his story is an interesting one where he can kind of tell us about his personal experiences. And then we've got local president Jeff Buttle with us as well, who's going to be able to talk about how the local kind of responded, kind of to show when it's the worst case scenario of a member getting sick, the best case scenario of how a local responds. So let me bring him in. Larry, um, Jeff, thanks so much for being here. We appreciate it. Um, how you guys doing today? Um, very good today. Thank you. I'm doing good, Doug. Uh, it's good to be here. Well, thanks, guys. I, I think, you know, the first place to start is probably the beginning of the pandemic and how Montgomery County reacted to the whole thing. What policies and procedures did you guys kind of start implementing right away? Walk me through that if you can, Jeff. Early on, not unlike a lot of jurisdictions around the country, Montgomery County was caught kind of flat-footed, if you will, with what this was going to become. Certainly nobody uh, has really ever dealt with a pandemic of this size and this nature and this magnitude. And I don't think anything that any of us really have ever trained for or any of the emergency response plans or, or anything that we've ever prepared really was ready for what it is that we were at the time about to deal with. We've certainly learned a lot since then. But I think initially it was a real struggle getting off the ground and the department was kind of really playing catch up. And I think one of the early things that was a very early concern of the local that we uh, advocated for and really pressed hard for was PPE for our members. And I think that where the department really struggled with some of the early policies is that they were making their policy decisions based off logistics and based off supply availability versus based off what was best for the health and safety of our members. I read a March 11th letter that our general president, Harold Shakeberger, wrote to the U.S. Health and Human Services Secretary. And in that letter, I really think the general president hit the nail on the head where he said the supply chain should not dictate the recommendation for a lower level of protection. And I think very early on, uh, that is what we and many others struggled with is it's not that we didn't want to provide the highest level of protection, but very early on, there was a big supply chain issue where the demand for all of this PPE far outpaced the supply chain. And there were very early policies that implemented lower levels of protection that were being driven by just the lack of availability to get PPE. So I, I think that was probably our biggest struggle that we had early on when the wave first hit Maryland and first hit Montgomery County. When the wave first hit, did you all change your response procedures as well? Were you changing how many people you were sending to a COVID run, how many people you were putting into a house? Did all of that factor into you know, the Montgomery County plan as well? Absolutely. Those were changes that we were able to make early on. There were you know, a number of things that we did kind of progressively over time. But, you know, some of the early changes were um, adding some protocols to our 911 call take screening uh, that could identify a potential COVID patient or potential COVID patient so that 
our providers would have uh, somewhat of a heads up when they were going to the call that they may want to uh, be on guard. And then we also either tried to, if the patient was able uh, to have them meet us outside their home or to the extent that they were not able and we did need to enter, uh, we would limit the number of people that were actually entering the home to kind of limit the exposure or try to reduce the exposure as much as possible for our providers. So it sounds like you guys were embracing the uh, policies and best practices that the IFF was putting out on that coronavirus website, right? Yes, absolutely. The IFF has uh, really been an invaluable resource. And there were really three specific jurisdictions very early on in the coronavirus that we learned a lot from. And I know that the IFF has modeled a lot of their recommendations off. And that was King County out in Washington State, San Jose, California, and New Orleans, uh, Louisiana. Uh, Those were some of the early uh, hit locals when the coronavirus and COVID-19 issues first came over here to to the country as a whole. And, and I think that those early lessons learned in those locals and those jurisdictions have been critically important to the rest of the country and, and to other locals around the IFF and uh, developing our plans and, and trying to make them as close as possible so we could incorporate the lessons learned from those jurisdictions. That's good. I mean, that's what it's all about, working with our networks and making sure we have what we need to keep our members safe. Let me bring Larry in for a second. Larry, kind of walk us through what was your assignment prior to your COVID diagnosis? What were you doing with the fire department? What kind of things did you see on the ground from this COVID pandemic? I work at a fire station 34 in Germantown, Maryland, and I am the station officer on my shift. Every shift, our assignment changes. I was riding uh, the truck company a lot during those weeks prior, but the calls that we were running were people were just starting to capture this fear of, of this pandemic and calling 911 because they wanted EMS to check them out, make sure they didn't have the virus or anything like that. We were kind of limited on some of the information that we were getting on how to diagnose these people. But Jeff is exactly right. We would limit the number of people that were going in to the house if it was a person under investigation, a PUI. So you guys were taking the precautions. You were doing the things that you needed to do at a very basic level, right? Now, did you guys notice an increase in calls for COVID-related symptoms? I think initially we did. People were calling us and they were, you know, I'm having trouble breathing, I'm having chest pain, that kind of stuff. And we would go through a series of questions and, and those evolved as the pandemic was developing. It, it was limited as far as like people going in and how we were addressing those patients. Did the department see, or has anybody gone back in time prior to COVID and see a possible spike in these types of calls that just wasn't picked up? Yeah, I'm not sure we we actually had the data of specifically to track that. And that's something that we've talked about, but nobody really knew very early on. You know, there's some thought that, you know, COVID was here much earlier than when we started seeing the spikes and, and started getting the, you know, the CDC guidance and the public health guidance. But we really didn't have any uh, system in place to track it early on because we didn't necessarily know what to look for. This pandemic hit us very quickly. In some regards, departments around the country, including ours, were a little bit flat-footed in responding to it initially. Uh, So certainly prior to it becoming kind of front and center to our attention, there certainly wasn't any tracking method that was in place to really 
track whether something was specifically COVID-related prior to the attention uh, being put on it in dealing with it as a pandemic. You spoke about your development of the protocols and the dispatch protocols for responding to PUIs and possible COVID patients. How did your department's SOPs, guidelines, uh, policies, however you refer to them, how did that help you in creating that? Was there already a structure there that you could just add on to that says, hey, look, we were prepared. We had these protocols in place, but we, all we had to do is expand? Or did you find yourself scrambling to really build out a whole protocol for this? Yeah, I think uh, on some of it, it was very simple for the 911 uh, screening questions. It was just uh, a matter of adding two or three questions to the uh, EMD protocol. Uh, so that was a fairly simple change. Some of the uh, other changes that were made, uh, which we really updated as a department on a daily basis and in something that we call a daily brief that goes out each morning, those were changes that were pretty significant from the way that we do our normal business. And the information was constantly changing that we were receiving from public health officials and from the CDC. So we were finding ourselves oftentimes being inundated with daily changes to our procedures based off the most current information. And I think that was a source of uh, frustration for many of our members is that we work a 2448 schedule in Montgomery County and you work one shift. And then by the time you come back three days later, we're doing just something completely different because the information was so fast flowing in the beginning and constantly changing. And that constant adjustment, I think, was something that was a challenge for the department. That's exactly right. We would come in and it was it was frustrating for the station officer to enforce the policies that were changing. Basically what Jeff said, every shift, every day, something new was happening. Oh, you got to do this. You can't do that. Do this now. You got to wear this kind of mask when you're here. Wear this kind of mask when you're there. Ever evolving in the early part of it. Larry, you think you were exposed while you were an EMS supervisor making runs to the hospitals. Walk us through kind of what that looked like, if you could. So I remember I was working my regular shift on St. Patrick's Day. And I just remember I was kind of tired. I thought it was a little weird. I was feeling kind of out of the ordinary. But um, prior to the 17th of March, I was working in an overtime capacity as EMS duty officer uh, for the north end of the county. And I remember going to two of the emergency departments where they were transporting these patients that had suspected uh, corona. And I was directly interacting with some of our members who were uh, on the job that day. Fast forward to the 17th when I was working, I felt really tired. When I got off work on the 18th, I was helping at one of the local hospitals in Montgomery County, help them set up kind of their ICS incident command structure for their hospital response to to this pandemic. And I was supposed to be there all day. And I I just remember in the later part of the morning, I got really ill and I couldn't focus very well. So I I told uh, my colleague that I just had to go on my way home. I called my wife and I, and I, I told her what was going on. And I told her that she was going to have to help me get out of the car. And, and, I, I, I honestly, I don't remember part of the drive home uh, and I don't remember getting home and her getting me out of the car. Uh, I know that I think I went to sleep uh, that day late in, in the mid afternoon sometime and I didn't wake up until 
later in the evening. And then things just kind of went downhill from there. So you progressed pretty quickly from being tired on the 17th to really sick on the 18th. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's crazy. When you say things progressed from there, what kind of symptoms? I mean, obviously you're fatigued, you're exhausted, but did you start having trouble breathing or what did that look like? I didn't really have trouble breathing in the initial stage, but I had uh, profound fatigue and uh, probably the uh, nausea was the worst thing for me. I, I haven't, I have never felt nausea to that degree in my entire life. And other symptoms progressed, but I, I started developing a fever probably two or three days maybe in, into it. But the nausea made me not want to have anything to drink. I wasn't drinking very much. So the 18th, I got sick. Eight days later, I, I finally broke down and I had to have a healthcare professional come to my house and start an IV on me. My doctor, who was, who was great, was calling me twice a day, uh, telemedicine in the morning and in the evening. She really didn't want me to go to the hospital just because of everything that was developing in that whole environment. So I, I wasn't drinking any fluids. I wasn't eating any food. I lost 23 pounds in the matter of probably a week, maybe. Wow. And then I started to develop shortness of breath. You were 10 days in from the initial onset of the fatigue and all that before the shortness of breath started? Yeah, I had already had nausea. I didn't have any any major GI symptoms with the exception of the nausea. Uh, I had some vomiting later on towards that end of the eight days. I think the dehydration was really starting to hit hard. I remember... I would have to get up in the middle of the night and we have a, a chair in our bedroom. I would sit in the chair, sit upright so that I could sleep because I was coughing so much, but not really shortness of breath at that point, just coughing and sitting up just kind of helped me. But that just compounded the fatigue. I bet. So when you're coughing, are you bringing anything up or is it just that dry, hacking, annoying cough? It was that dry, hacking, annoying cough. Exactly. I just could not rest. I couldn't sleep. It was just that dry, hacking cough. So Larry, at what point did you realize that this was not just, oh, well, I got the flu or I'm sick to a point to where, oh my God, what did I do to my family? Or are they exposed? Right. Take us through that process and, and how that's worked out for you. So that Sunday, the 23rd, my wife and I were just, we were like, we got to go get tested. And uh, our doctor had, had already set up the test for us through Johns Hopkins. We drove up there and the next day, you know, we get the results. It was pretty quick. We had already isolated ourselves to the bedroom because we, we kind of suspected that we had it. We just needed confirmation. There are six of us that live in the house. And so later on that week, I think it was Wednesday following our test and getting the results. The rest of our family went and, and got tested. And one of my daughters tested positive and my mother-in-law tested positive. So it was me, my wife, one of my daughters and my mother-in-law tested positive. My father-in-law and my other daughter tested negative. And I describe it as a moving target because I was really sick. And if I had to rate it on a one to 10, I'd say I was probably at a nine. And my wife was an eight. My mother-in-law had a runny nose and a cough for a couple of days. And my daughter, who tested positive, had zero symptoms. It was just kind of crazy how that was going on. 
So, but basically we self-isolated ourselves for a good two weeks. We'd use our cell phones and my wife would uh, basically tell them what we needed to eat or drink. They'd bring it to the door. They'd set it on a table outside our bedroom door. She would get it and we would eat or drink if we were able to and then set it outside. They, they were wearing masks and gloves and all that kind of stuff. So isolating in different rooms or were you guys isolating together to at least have some company? We were together only because we had both already tested positive. So we were, our doctor was like, you know, you're both positive, confirmed. So I can't remember a lot of what happened during those couple of weeks. And so I was so sick that my wife was there taking care of me, you know, making sure I was okay and things like that. I mean, I remember two of the nights that I had resolved to myself that I was not going to wake up the next day. And I was surprised when I did. I'm a diabetic. I'm a uh, type two diabetic. So I think that that kind of compounded what was going on. So she kept a journal of everything that was going on with me as far as like blood sugar and temperatures and symptoms and medications that I was getting and things like that. So she helped me out a lot. That's nice help to have, very thorough to have somebody looking out for you like that. I mean, good on her. Yeah, definitely. So I know you, you relied on your family a lot. How long did all those symptoms last in total before you were feeling up and around where you could, you know, get out of the room and kind of be functioning again, for lack of a better term? It was uh, probably the first weekend of April that I came out of the room and I felt kind of starting to feel a little bit better and kind of getting back to normal. Well, I want to, I don't want to say normal, but it was that I could come downstairs because I had, I had been in my room since, since the 18th. I, I did not come out. And I want to say it was probably the first weekend of April that, that I finally decided I, I was feeling okay enough to walk downstairs. But when I came downstairs, it was like the house cleared out. There was nobody downstairs. There was nobody in my walk path or anything like that. So it happens to me all the time at home, Brent. It's not because of COVID. It's because my kids just don't like me. Um, so one of the things I know, Jeff, the local stepped up and really kind of did some things to help Larry and his family out. That's really what this fire union, what our IFF is all about is helping each other out. Kind of talk about what you guys did to help the family get through all of this. You know, I think Larry was our first member that came up positive for COVID. And I remember getting a phone call from one of my vice presidents, TJ Brennan, who called me and said, hey, do you, do you know what's going on with Larry Laughlin? And I said, well, I know that somebody's sick up at station 34 you know, but I, I don't know really any more than that. He said, well, it's Larry and, you know, kind of here's what's going on with him. And at that point, TJ had uh, either talked to Larry or his wife, one of the two, and kind of got the early story about how he was sick and not feeling well. He drove home, you know, by the time he got home, his wife had to help him out of the car. And I, I just remember because we were in very early talks with the department and the county about how to notify the local if we have a sick member. And a very large part of why we wanted to know that is so that we can help and assist our members. I mean, it's a very much a part of what the IFF does is looking out for our members. And, and certainly we have a, a vested interest in, in knowing. And I, I know that the membership at the time as well was really kind of uh, frustrated with the department and not coming up with any system to, to be able to notify 
anybody when a member gets sick. I mean, it's just something that we want to know about. And we're a big family. We want to help each other out. And we can't do that if we don't know who's sick. And I, I just remember being so furious at the fact that I had Larry who was, who was really starting to get sick. And had we not heard about it through happenstance, there was no official notification from the department. There wasn't anything. And, and, and the next time I went or, or we were in discussions with the county, I just remember being so mad with the county about, you know, here's a perfect example of a sick member that we have. And nobody even had the courtesy to even call and let us know anything was going on. Uh, you know, from fire management. And I was just really upset about it. It really, Larry was one of the early cases that really propelled a lot of the really good things that we were able to put in place moving forward on behalf of our members. And shortly after I got the initial phone call, uh, we kind of set up a conference call with Larry, who was not feeling, I remember very specifically from this call, um, it was myself and uh, Vice President Brennan and our recording secretary, Brock Klein, who did a conference call with Larry. And I, I remember, you know, Larry was kind of telling us what happened. I don't even know if Larry remembers this phone call because I remember him being really sick. And, you know, Larry is one of our most senior captains. He's a very well-respected captain and he's a tough guy. And I, I remember talking with my other principal officers when I got off that initial call with Larry, with the three of us saying, I'm really worried because if Larry is saying he's really sick, that's amplified to me. You know, a lot of COVID is, you know, there's no treatment available. And in, in some regards, you, you kind of have to let it run its course unless you really, really get sick. Uh, but from there, we kept in uh, constant contact uh, with Larry, usually via just text message. So he could just kind of get back to us when he felt up to it. I even remember one day that our vice president called me and said, hey, I'm on the way to Larry's house. Uh, he had went down to Safeway and got a few things that Larry needed, dropped it off on his front porch. And and really, it was just there to be able to support Larry with the constant, whatever you need, you let us know. And it is 100% taken care of. We were already in discussions with the, with the county administration at that point about a lot of the things. But, but Larry's story was such a compelling one. It really became the catalyst that sparked change to happen a lot more quickly uh, than I think it otherwise would have. T.J. Brennan lives kind of in the same area that I do, and uh, my 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 heartfelt thanks to him. My heartfelt thanks to the the members and the officers of the union because they really stepped up and really supported me and my family. And basically, it was kind of like whatever we needed, we needed something to give them a call, send them a text, and. I think TJ, Jeff says he went to Safeway. I think he went to four or five different stores to get the one or two things that we really needed. I mean, he really, really stepped up for that. And I, I really, really appreciate it. And so does my family. I think hearing that we've got local leaders out there that are going grocery shopping for our members that are ill really drives home, like you said, the family aspect of what being in the IFF means. That's so neat to hear. President Buttle, you started going down the road of talking about the changes that have been made since Larry got sick. What are some of those things that you guys have been able to accomplish working with the county? We really uh, kind of post Larry really sped up the process of coming to an agreement with the county on a number of different things. And I'll, I'll really highlight some of the most important ones because I think it's important for other local leaders uh, throughout the country uh, that will be uh, listening to this podcast and still are trying to 
come up with ways. I mean, some of the things that we did are really just beneficial. I think first and foremost is we were able to come to an agreement that if one of our members uh, is placed off for COVID, their entire time off work until they get cleared medically to come back uh, is covered on paid administrative leave. So we don't have to have a member out there worrying about not having a paycheck, not being able to pay bills, not being able to support their family. It's paid administrative leave for for when you're sick from COVID. Is that only if they're positive for COVID or is that for any kind of quarantine due to an exposure on the job? Yeah, it's actually for any type of quarantine. So if you are ordered by a medical provider to be quarantined, uh, it's both for the members that do come up COVID positive, but if you are quarantined by a medical provider for another reason, uh, and that'll kind of get in a little bit to the second part uh, of what we're able to negotiate, uh, but any quarantine by a medical provider for any reason, and for the duration of that quarantine, the member is entitled to paid administrative leave from the department. I think that's a really big distinction that is important to make, right? It's not just if you are designated or tested positive, it's if you're quarantined at all, you guys have your members time covered. That's a great benefit. Yeah. And and the second piece I think that's uh, really important as well is Larry mentioned some of what he he thought uh, with some of his uh, medical history kind of maybe exasperated it for him. And another thing that we were concerned about is either our members, you know, that have an immunocompromised uh, condition or fall under any of the CDC high risk guidelines and not only for the member, but for their family or somebody that lives with them. So if they have a family member or somebody that lives with them that falls in one of the high-risk categories, uh, we developed a process where upon submitting documentation of the high-risk CDC condition to our medical section, uh, after the physician at our medical session reviews that and you know, concurs that, you know, indeed it does fall within the CDC high-risk guidelines, there are two options for that employee. Either one, they're provided telework uh, by the department. Uh, Now, as you can imagine, in the fire and rescue service, we don't have a whole lot of work uh, that can be done via telework, but there is some that can be done. And in a few cases, uh, there have been some of our members that have been able to still work via telework. But if telework is not available, and you either are at high risk yourself or have a family member or somebody that you live with that's high risk, and there is no telework available by the department, that is also paid administrative leave. And uh, we've had a number of members that have applied for that and have been granted the the administrative leave. And uh, still to to this day, uh, you know, are on paid administrative leave. It really gives uh, members kind of a sense of security that they don't have to worry about having to be at work, be in a, an environment where in our profession we're, we're exposed all the time and then having to just have that constant worry of, of being able to drag that home to your family uh, and for somebody you know that is you know might be high risk at your home. So I thought that was an, a great additional benefit that goes a little bit even beyond the individual member themselves. Yeah, unfortunately, my father-in-law is a, a stomach cancer survivor. So with the four of us being tested positive, we were really concerned about him getting sick as well. And so that's why we decided that even before our test results, we were going to quarantine early. And then Dr. Christensen, he's our uh, medical director for operational medical section. Um, he said something to me about uh, the amount of exposure that I had, and I'm not sure 
if that had any correlation to how sick I was or anything like that. So but just wanted to throw that in in case it was useful or not for other members of the union, their families and things like that. No, that's great stuff. And I applaud Jeff and Local 1664 for being able to go there and affect the change necessary to protect the members in the field, especially Larry. I think Larry benefited from strong local leadership. And knowing Jeff as long as I have, I know Jeff is one of our IFF's battle-tested leaders and knows how to maneuver in politics and government and knows how to maneuver through the department to get what he needs for his members. So on that note, Jeff, what would you recommend out there for a local president who's in his first couple months of his term, he's brand new, they're still essentially just trying to find the paper clips and get a hold of what the job entails. What are some of the things that you could recommend local leaders do to prepare for this type of incident in their locals? You know, whether you're a new leader or not, you know, we all come from the fire service family and certainly know how to take care of one another. But my recommendation for a new leader would be to establish a plan internally in advance. So, you know, when we have members that are sick, uh, open up that constant line of communication with them, stay in touch with them, and have resources that are available to assist them with whatever it is that they need. And I also encourage them to reach out and start establishing the relationships, not only with the uh, fire department management, but also with uh, the elected administration, uh, because that's really where the, the rubber meets the road. Uh, a lot of what we worked out were, you know, discussions uh, above the department level that required, you know, uh, discussions with our county executive and our chief administrative officer, because they were just, they, they were not only decisions that they made uh, for us, but they had certainly countywide implications as well. So one of the most important things, uh, certainly for this COVID pandemic, and I think just in general, is establish those relationships, open the lines of communications and let them know what you need for your members and how it is that they can better assist your members. Most administrations, particularly during this pandemic, and I think to somewhat in general, although we do have some some uh, more hostile administrations uh, in some jurisdictions, you know, they want to take care of the firefighters, uh, particularly during this pandemic. And it all starts with establishing those lines of communications and building those relationships, not only for now, but in the future moving forward. That would be my advice to a, a new local affiliate leader that, that's just starting out. I think that's, that's really good advice to get those relationships started. So much of what local leaders do is relationship-based. That's, you know, I, I tell people all the time, the core to unionism is relationships. Larry, I want to ask one more follow-up question before we kind of get into concluding. How are you doing now? Um, what kind of long-term effects are you looking at? I know you're back to work, which is great, but how are you feeling in general? I feel good. I mean, I'm, I'm full duty right now, and I think what's bothering me right now is I feel like I still have a little respiratory compromise. But I'm, I'm not really sure. So uh, I'm kind of letting some time take care of things. And then hopefully when I see my private physician, have that evaluated a little bit more. But I, I do feel a difference from before I was, uh, I was sick to now. So, you know, other than that, I think everything else is okay. So, guys, thanks for being here. Is there anything else either of you would like to add? Again, I, I want to thank the union and its officers and members for all of the support that they gave me. I think it was 
it's very much appreciated. I just want to reiterate my my family's uh, appreciation to the union for everything that they did. That's a great way to end this podcast. So, Larry, Jeff, Local 1664, thank you guys for being with us, sharing your stories, and helping us kind of put a personal face to what this coronavirus pandemic means to our members. Mark, I, I think you know, as we close this out, another good podcast that hopefully our members can take and learn a little something that they can apply to their jobs on. Yeah, I think this is serious. You know, we, we ran a period of time there where a lot of members in areas that aren't affected seem to think that this was a hoax. It's not something serious. And experts are predicting a surge in the fall where this comes back. And they're starting to see reports in certain states now where this is a surge. And this is a good call to action for our members to understand the situation, be prepared, and also be prepared to help others when the time comes. So, uh, Larry, Jeff, I appreciate you being here with us for this episode, and thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. Just to remind everybody, if you like this podcast, be sure to share it with your friends, share it with your coworkers. The more we can put the word out there that we're putting out good information, the better off we are. Be sure to subscribe. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. 